Lord Jesus Christ, come by your Spirit and open our hearts and imaginations. As we think about what we've heard read, we may find our wills and our lives shaped by you. Amen. It's very nice, there's a clock here that counts down. I hope you can't see it. <laughs> That's an innovation. <laughs> First of all, I want to say thank you to you, to all of you here in the Marquee at St. Paul's. I want to say thank you to those who may see this later and in the church plants. Thank you for what you have done in your willingness to go not just the extra mile, but so many miles in the way you have set an example around the church for your generosity, your hospitality, your vision, and your courage. Thank you to all of you at Holy Trinity. It is an extraordinary example to the church, not just in this country, but in the world. Please keep going. And then I want to go on to ask a question. The question is a very simple one. Who runs our lives? It could be someone who has a lot of influence over us. It could be someone who has notional authority over us. It could be someone we love and therefore listen to very carefully. Most of those uh, people who are Christians would say that the authority in their lives is God in Jesus Christ. We are the servants of the Lord, as Jesus' mother said, let it be unto me as the Lord decrees. But the reality is that even if we say that, on the whole, our daily practice is slightly different. Daily events do not permit us to choose from moment to moment consciously to see who we are obeying. Many decisions are not those reasonably open to prayer, but are simply obeyed. If we treated every traffic light or no right turn sign when driving as a challenge to the ultimate authority of God over our lives, the traffic in London would get even more confusing than it is already. Nor, nor do I think the magistrate would be very impressed if we sought to defend driving at 60 and a 30 zone by saying, I owe obedience to a higher authority. So how does it work out? One of the wonderful things about the book of Daniel in particular is that it is a book that is full of the questions about where ultimate authority and decision lies not only for each of us, not only for the whole people of God, but for the whole cosmos, for the whole universe. In the book, we find that Daniel and his Jewish colleagues are constantly wrestling with the day-to-day -day issues of moral challenge and ethical difficulty that come from working for them in a non-Jewish environment at the very top of the civil service in Persia. Let's be clear, Daniel in the book, and in this chapter especially, is seen as at the top of his tree. 
There is no, this is no mid-range civil servant carrying out his duties. This is the cabinet secretary, responsible only to the king for the actions he takes. And let us also remember that he is not in a society in which we live, in which on the whole, even though there are politics, even pretty savage politics as we've seen in the last week or so, there are plots and underhand schemes. There are, unlike us, no clear boundaries beyond which action is seen as wrong. The Persian Empire in which Daniel worked was a very difficult place. Corruption was the norm, and people who obtained the king's favor would also be expected to obtain wealth from that favor, and wealth not only for themselves, but for all their friends and relatives. Many countries today still operate on that basis. When you're appointed to a senior post, it is seen as a way of you and all your clan or family or tribe obtaining support. Even in this country, there is a sense that each political party owes something to its supporters if it gets into office. Furthermore, the culture of Persia, like many parts of the world today, was a culture of honor and shame. We've lost much, but not all, of that sense. It is the culture that led people to give their lives rather than to lose their honor. It's the culture that said that death is better than disgrace. It's the culture which 100 years ago would lead in novels to the cliched situation in this country where a man about to face disgrace is told by his friend, I've been cleaning my pistol and it is loaded in that desk drawer. I am going out for a few minutes. This is the culture in which Daniel is operating. He must behave honorably, but honor does not prevent political scheming. He must not be disgraced, and disgrace is seen as much in losing a political battle as in poor behavior. But when we read this as Christians today, there is a different picture. We do not live in the same way by honor and shame because Jesus has done all that. He lived the shame of the cross in order to bring us forgiveness and recognition and honor before God. We are not ashamed of ourselves, we should not be, or the gospel because the message of Christ transforms the world and is salvation to all who believe. At least that is the truth. I will come back to its application. Yet as Christians, we do face one vast question, the question which is given to every human being on the face of the planet. It is the question of ultimate authority. In many countries, Christians find themselves commanded to do things that are wrong. Yet we live in a country that, where there is still more or less the sense that certain things are always wrong, and to be commanded to do them is not a valid order. Even in our own country, if you go to the armed forces or the security services, they spend a great deal of time on the issues of what is right and wrong. I gave a lecture in one of the security services recently, and they asked me to talk about how you work out 
what is right and wrong. For it is well understood nowadays that to do wrong because you are obeying orders is not to escape responsibility. Only obeying orders was the main defense presented by many of the defendants in the Nuremberg war trials when the senior members of the Nazi government, of the armed forces and secret police were put on trial for war crimes. Only obeying orders is the excuse that people bring when they have done something that they do not in their heart of hearts feel was intrinsically right, but where they felt disempowered. And the story of Daniel 6 is very clear as to its subject. Jealousy and politics, honor and shame are at the center. But the deep question is, who does Daniel obey? It's a classic question in the Old Testament. You find similar patterns earlier in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the burning fiery furnace, and in the book of Esther, the greatest romance story in the Old Testament, together with the book of Ruth. Great for children, by the way. If you have, uh, if you have young children, those two books are the most beautiful books to read them, to show them the beauty of the Bible. In all these cases, there is a classic pattern of story. There is scheming by the enemies of God to defeat the people of God and to cause a powerful but foolish king who is himself often sympathetic to the people of God to act in a way that will trap him into doing the wrong thing. And Darius falls straight into the trap. He is flattered and succumbs to the flattery. Flattery is very deceiving. Fortunately, I have enough people who tell me how badly I'm doing that it is usually contradicted. In many traditions, including the Church of England, in many traditions of Christian worship, on the Thursday before Easter, Maundy Thursday, at the evening service, the leader of the church washes the feet of the people in the church, imitating Jesus. As time went by, as the centuries went by, bishops and archbishops especially, I'm sure especially archbishops, felt that this was not quite the way of showing how important they were. Although doubtless it was very good for Jesus, one does wonder how important they thought he was. So they first of all arranged that the washing of feet was done symbolically only, and then quietly dropped it. I know many churches where on Maundy Thursday, the people, even if they wash feet, the people who are going to have their feet washed are, clear, are carefully picked beforehand <laughs> and worn some week or so earlier. I have washed feet that were so well prepared and so carefully cleaned, you could have eaten your dinner off them. <laughs> the king falls into the trap of self-importance. And by the way, so do we. You know, when people say to you, it's a matter of principle, we must not give in. We must stand up tall and proud. The word proud always comes in. Humility is weakness. Apology is shame. Darius had a, has a foolish law, the laws of the Medes and Persians, and it did exist. And he was told that once the king had ruled something, it could not be changed. 
out of pride, he finds himself trapped. Maybe there's people here who are sitting in a trap. They know they're trapped in a relationship that's broken down. In work where they're finding themselves doing the wrong thing. And they say, oh, I, I, I can't get out of this. It would be too shaming. It's easy to be trapped. So we have evil people on the one hand, a king trapped by his own pride and pleasure at being told how important he was on the other, and finally someone faithful in prayer and obedience to God. Daniel was meant to pray. As an observant Jew, he was meant to pray twice a day. If you've got the text and you're looking at it, you will see he prayed three times. It demonstrated his immense holiness and commitment to service. In other words, as a daily practice, he put God as the most important authority in his life. How many people here do that as a daily practice? I'm not asking by attitude, but by that hard and non-extendable resource of time. Time spent with God in prayer. Do you start the day with a time of prayer and reading the Bible? Do you go to work committed to God, being the supreme authority in your life? Do you turn to Jesus during the day from time to time and see how things have gone between you and him during the morning or during the afternoon? It's very difficult to do it the whole time. There's a famous prayer from the 17th century in which uh, the soldier Jacob Astley, about to go into battle in 1642 at Edge Hill, prayed this, O oh Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget thee, do not thou forget me. Well, many of us are in jobs like that. Go to a hospital on a busy day in the A&E department, and it is just overwhelming. But we can still find that even if the only prayer we can do is an arrow prayer, a prayer to say, oh God, help, Lord Jesus, I love you, be with me. Even in most busy jobs, we can do that. We can develop the habit of a review, a couple of minutes of drawing back into the presence of God during the day to renew our commitment to him, to know where our final authority lies. It is set in the morning with the Bible and with prayer and putting the day into the hands of the Lord. And one continues it through the day by momentary checks and listening to the word of the Spirit in commitment to Christ. But the challenge for Daniel and for us goes far deeper than simply whose orders we obey. It is a question of how seriously we take the authority of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, as I hope most of you know, he revealed God to us completely. Nothing was missing. Everything we need to know about God is seen in looking at Jesus. There is nothing we can add to what we find in Jesus and, or anything that we can take away. And the Bible tells us the truth about who Jesus is. Nikki mentioned reading the Bible through the year. Do it if you're not doing it. It is the most extraordinary gift. 
Of course, it must be read carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully and intelligently, yet in the Bible we find a testimony to the truth about Jesus, a reliable testimony on which we can put the weight of our lives. More than that, Jesus in his own teaching affirms the authority of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. Again, it has to be read intelligently. There's a whole bunch of things we have to learn about how we read the Bible so we know whether what we're reading is poetry, metaphor, history, explanation, teaching, prophecy, whatever. But the Bible, because it is the testimony to Jesus, the Word of God, can never be put at our service. We are to be directed by it. Now, one of the most exciting things about reading the Bible and its authority of teaching is that when you read it, you find that it involves a lot of questioning of God. We don't just go with the flow in the life we live in this world. The Psalms have Psalms of lament, of protest, of petition, of celebration, of fury against God and other people. Every human emotion is there. And if you want to see churches with problems, read Paul's letters. Most of us would probably not want to have gone anywhere near many of those churches. They were full of sinners. <laughs> so unlike. And I won't finish that sentence. <laughs> so as in Daniel 6, we have not just a fun story that can be turned into good pictures for children's storybook Bibles, but the living challenge to how we read and understand the Bible today, and a day-to-day -day challenge about where we find authority and how we live our lives in a way that pleases God. Daniel calls us to look afresh at the whole of our lives, and above all, to whose authority is final. The customs of our society, the morality we find around us, the pressure of our friends, or God, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Daniel's final source of salvation, of hope, of purpose, of understanding the world around him is God and God's teaching. For us that mean, means that it is through the Holy Spirit reading the scriptures, listening to the gifts of the Spirit as we're spoken to in prophecy and other ways through prayer and above all, through submitting ourselves to Jesus as Lord every day. So that's what this is finally about. Is Jesus Lord of your life and mine? Of course, that's something we grow into through our whole lives. God tidies up our lives, sorts them out, puts them in order by the work of the Holy Spirit at the pace we can manage. He is our loving Father who treats us with generosity and grace and kindness. But the question for each of us is always, is Jesus Lord? It applies in every area. Is he Lord of your career and your job hopes? Is he Lord of your romantic relationships? Is he Lord when it comes to sexual behavior? Is he Lord when it comes to the use of any kind of substances? Is he Lord over your money, especially and almost beyond anything else? Above all, is his Lordship demonstrated not in power, but in love? 
the kind of earth-shaking, life-changing, world-transforming, wound-healing, sin-forgiving, courage-enhancing, generosity-inspiring, hospitality-creating, fire-blazing love of which Michael Curry spoke at the royal wedding. That is but a fraction of the love of Jesus for you and for me and for our world. That is the good news we have to share as God's people of this love. And we share it by Jesus being Lord, for in that way we find salvation for ourselves, for all who turn to him, and transformation for the world. For let us not be deceived. That transformation is needed more and more. For in so many areas with robotics and science and the economy and all kinds of ways, biogenetics, we are increasingly imagining that we are lords of our own destiny. We need the transformation. We need to imagine this country, our whole world, but this country, let's begin, in a way that looks like the kind of place that Jesus would have felt at home in. Because if we don't imagine it, we cannot pray for it. If we do not pray for it, we will not be changed ourselves. If we're not changed ourselves, we will not see it. And having imagined, we are called first to proclaim the good news of Jesus in word and deed bringing people to faith in Christ and also to show that faith in changing the world. What a purpose we have in life. It's not just to find salvation and hug it to ourselves, it's to change the world. <laughs> Praise God. That is our mission. Our own country and others needs to be a place where the poor are loved and cared for with the love of Jesus, where those who slip and fall and fail are picked up and restored with the mercy and justice of Jesus, where the sick are given treatment and love in the generosity of Jesus, where the bereaved are comforted with the hope of Jesus, where the mentally ill are valued with the compassion of Jesus. It needs to be a country where the homeless are housed, where children of all backgrounds are educated to their full potential, where the economy serves people, not people, the economy, where God's wonderful creation is something we steward and don't abuse. For Jesus reaches out to us in love. And whereas Daniel never gives the slightest sense that he knew whether he would be protected by God from the lions or not, but neither does he show fear. That comes from the king who can't sleep and who fasts and prays all night. The bad monarch turns out to be a man who knows where real authority is. Whereas Daniel shows no fear, he trusts himself to God. So we have no fear for the church, no fear for the future. Despite all the uncertainties, there can be no fundamental fear because Jesus is risen from the dead. Amen. Daniel trusts himself to God. I want to say to everyone listening to this, is that something you've done? Other people here have not done that. 
Is it something you need to renew, to ink in, if it's only been in pencil and hesitantly? Is it something you started and need to reaffirm, to open up more areas of your life in the prayer ministry that will come shortly? and say, please pray for this, that it will be an area where Jesus is Lord. Please let me know how I rise to this great challenge of transformation. Daniel laid his life on the line. People around the world do that for Jesus every day. I was talking to one last week, an archbishop in Nigeria, who'd recently been attacked. To lay your life on the line is to trust yourself into the hands of Jesus. But it's not only in the great dramatic moments. Caroline, my wife, was in Burundi this week. She got back on Thursday. She went there to pray and work with the wives of bishops there, encouraging them day by day as they walk with Jesus in one of the poorest countries on earth. For her, that is obedience to the call of Jesus. And of course, when she got there, she found he was ahead of her. Not to her surprise. And in those women, she found a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. You know, there is no decision in life that is more sensible, more wonderful, more exciting, more extraordinary than the decision to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is nothing, there is nothing this world needs more than faithful and faith-filled disciples of Jesus Christ. And there is no way of being a disciple. Unless, like Daniel, the final authority for our lives rests not in our hands, but in the hands of the God who reveals himself in Jesus and is testified to in the Bible. That is our challenge today and every day. For we have a calling and a vision and a hope that is from no one less than God himself. And we know that in his power and love, all things are possible. Amen.